Everyone, go ahead and get started. Um, just because uh, looking at a lot of clips this morning, so I know it's going to be you know a lot of me not talking. So I want to want to go ahead and get started so we can get to the good stuff. So why don't we open with prayer? Gracious and heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, um, uh, on this day, Trinity Sunday, we give thanks for. Uh, uh, for your work in our life, um, Lord, that you exist in relation to each other, um, help us know in that image, that uh, imago dei, that image of being in relationship to yourself, that we were also created to be um, relating one to another, and then weave that word into uh, to this hour. I pray, um, make it a living word in your Son Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Nope. No, no, no. So, um, no, thanks. Um, thanks. It's great seeing everybody. Start of a new series on Cindy beforehand. I haven't taught in, it's been like six weeks. So it's kind of worked out that way with some of the, the clergy on the Advent staff now and all that, that we take a little bit, you know, more kind of take turns teaching and all that stuff. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a nice break, but it's great to be back. Um, I hope this is, a, I hope it's a good little series. It's a four-week series. Matt Stokes just walked in. He's going to take one of the weeks, week three. Um, it's sort of a, a work in progress, um, definitely a summer series, uh, with this being the Truth in Life class. It's a class that Joe Gibbs is hoping to get off on the ground. It's not definitely not Christianity light, L-I-T-E, but hopefully Christianity sort of more with, with a greater accessibility than, than some other classes that we coordinate here. Um, and so with that, uh, what I meant when I said um, a lot of video clips and me trying to get out of the way and not talk as much and let some of the, the stories carry the day. Um, uh, for the series, really I'm not going to overplan this, which I can sometimes do. Um, uh, a lot of time I hope to do a lot of watching and then a lot of talking within the group, a lot of crosstalk, if you want to call it that, or, or back and forth responses, because I'm uh, going to look at some clips um, uh, today looking at a TED Talk. Some of y'all probably know what that is. There's this this think tank. I'm not sure how to describe TED. What does it stand for? Technology, Entertainment, Design. You might know how it all started. I know several of y'all listen to these things. It's just a strange group. They're awesome. You can go to, I think, I guess it's TED.com. Um, Josh, do you know where the address or anything is? I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, just look up TED or email me because there's just... Just all these innovators or you know leaders of business and industry or, or Hollywood, and they're just they, they give like these 20-minute talks, and they're all taped and they're all available online. And there's there, you know, there's not a bad one in the group. Some of them are just you know painfully insightful. Um, they're really good. So we're gonna look at a little clip from that um, from one of those today. And then today, I, I promise, it's the only day we're going to look at some U2 stuff. We're going to look at a, at a U2 thing, um, about 10 minutes, unfortunately, so it's a long time. Um, but it's really cool for those of y'all who don't like it. Two of y'all are going to like it. Everybody else is going to be patient with me. I do hope you'll come back, because in other weeks, um, uh, A River Runs Through It, um, a movie clip from that I'm working with, um, something from uh, probably Ordinary People. Remember Mary Tyler Moore stepping out, really sort of 1981 or something like that, probably looking at that maybe an X-Files episode, some things from this book, which unfortunately we're sold out of in the bookstore, This American Gospel um, by Ethan Richardson, um, a new book that's out, um, which I read last weekend. It's just a great, great, great read, so unfortunately you can't buy it today, but wait two weeks, it'll be back, or if you have to, go get it online because it's really worth your time. Uh, just some pieces like that that we're looking at over these next um, four weeks. Plus, you get to hear Matt on week three, and that's going to be worth the price of admission. So, so with all that... 
playing on this word, God at work. Um, somebody asked me last night, uh, it, 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 I left it intentionally ambiguous, is that God at work, like where we spend, where we trade our time for money, um, where we, we, we sort of work in a vocation, a calling, a job, employment. Maybe I left it open enough to, to leave it there. It's going to be less that, and more. You know, where is God? Where where is God? Where where is He in our life? How does He intersect? You know, sort of on that vertical axis from wherever He is up there down here. It's a good question. It's a question I think a lot of us want to know. Um, so now pitching it over, like I said, really relying on y'all, so it's not just me talking a bunch. How would either most of us instinctually or how would most of the world, it's really easy to talk about that other person, um, how would that other person fill in the blank with a question like, God is at work in those who blank? You know, God at work. Where is he working? How do we know that he's working? How do we know it's God? And so how do we answer that question? How does the world, how does your spouse, how does that other person answer the question, God is at work in those who, what are some answers? What's that? In those who seek him. That's right. That's one I had down too. What else? In those who suffer. It's an interesting take. Um, would you say that's... Why would you say that? If you open your mouth, you're going to get penalized with a follow-up <laughs> question. It's a bad idea on my part because nobody else is going to ask anything. So I retract that. Never mind, Eleanor. Thank you for playing. Why does anybody else think that Eleanor said that? So, that God is at work in those who suffer. Because that's when you turn to him the most. Okay. Fair, when you finally realize a need. So, is that a natural idea or an unnatural idea? Unnatural. I would agree. I would say that most people, the way we're born into the world, you wouldn't say that. Um, you wouldn't say God is at work when you get the diagnosis of cancer. You would say God is at work when you're healed from cancer. Would y'all agree? More people would say that. The common interview. You know, well, I'm just blessed. You know, why are you blessed? I'm blessed because my wife just left me, and my dog hates me, and, and that's not what they're saying. I'm blessed because I have this opportunity to play the game and make $6 million a pitch. You know, that's what, that's what you're saying. I'm blessed because I get this good stuff. Got at work. Got at work, um, you know, sort of unnatural idea, which I would agree with in those who suffer those who seek him, um, God at work, um, famously, of course, Ben Franklin, not the book of Proverbs, which is where most people sometimes think, sorry about that. That's right, sir. Um, God helps those who, yeah, completely wrong, by the way, absolutely 100% wrong, not in the Bible. It's one of my sort of high horses that nobody else wants to get. Ben Franklin did a lot of things that were great for our country, but not so much for, for Christianity. That is not quite a statement. Jim? I was going to say God is at work at all times and in all places. Yeah. So, Even those who seek to run from Exactly. So, and that's, you know, and press that a little bit, because I would agree 100%. God is at work at all times and in all places. And so here, the, 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 the push of that word, God is at work in all times and in all places. The addict, the, the, uh, the, the, the adulterer, the, the one who just got diagnosed as being sick, the one who can't get anything right, the one who's just absolutely 100%, you know, a, a, a blank. This is being taped, so I don't want to say it. Um, you know, just that guy. And God is at work in that woman, in that guy, in that, in that evil... Le- you know, that's, that's now getting to be an unusual idea. If God is at work at all times and in all places, including... 
you know, classically, this would be Pharaoh's hardened heart. You know, uh, that, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he kept telling Moses no. That's a big question. Why did God do that? Yeah, Mary. Then could you say God is at work in the lives of those who he uh, You could. Well, that pulls it right into what Frank was saying. So, um, about you know the, that being a, a, a child of God and does God love even not His children? You know, big question. Right now, I want to beg these questions. Good questions. Trying to just get a little bit this question: God at work? Where is He? How does it work? Um, uh, worldly ideas, different answers that I came up with. God is at work in those who help themselves and those who seek Him. Just what you said. Um, Janet, for those who are worthy, for those who have their stuff together, um, for those who have something to offer, for those who confess their sins and turn to Him, you know, we hear that a lot. Um, and a lot of those are true. I would say even 98% true. But I immediately ask, well, what about the guy who isn't seeking Him? What about the guy who doesn't have his stuff together? What about the guy who's not confessing his sins and turning to Him? Sort of the classical sinner's prayer and, you, you know, you know, every... Every eye closed and every knee bowed, you know, you know, come up front and we'll pray for you, that sort of stuff. Is God at work there? Or does he just say, you know, I, I'm sorry, I cannot do anything for that person? Um, that's where we're going the next few weeks. Because hopefully, and then looking at movies like Ordinary People and River Runs Through It, two, two families that just aren't working. Is God at work in those families? Um, uh, in this X-Files episode that I'm playing with. Um, uh, anyway, just where is God at work? in those places. So, um, a scripture that I thought we'd hang on today, um, the calling of David, sort of the high water mark of Israel, the, the King David. Um, you remember this. Uh, uh, there was this crazy King Saul, he became crazy later when the Spirit of the Lord withdrew from him. Now, that's a scary, uh, that's a scary statement. Um, but as, as Saul didn't kill everybody that the Lord commanded him to kill, the Lord was not pleased with Saul anymore. Well, there's a strange way to put it, but that's right there in, in 1 Samuel 15. And so he tells the prophet Samuel to go out, and uh, now that I've departed from Saul and I'm choosing another, go and, uh, and, and find Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and I will um, uh, I'll work uh, through him. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. Now, Jesse had eight sons, and so uh, it goes through this way. So here's... Here's First Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. So Samuel's like, If I go, I'm a dead man. He says, uh, The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So he says, tell a half-truth. <laughs> Cover yourself. You know, um, That's also an interesting question. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to, anoint me for, uh, you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So, say it again. Uh, the Lord is saying, go, and then I'll tell you once you're there what I want you to do. It's sort of a, you know, once you go, then you'll get your further instructions on a need-to-know basis. So Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, which is the oldest. So they're starting with the, the, the number one guy, the oldest of the, uh, of the eight sons. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, because he's the oldest. He's the oldest of Jesse. Of course, the Lord would take the creme de la creme, the preference of the firstborn, etc., and so forth. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinanab, the number two son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass before, number three. And Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. There's the runt, and he's out doing women's work, in other words, is what he's saying. So, um, uh, uh, tending the sheep, it's often what the, the daughters did. Um, and in that society, I think we kind of go there. Um, uh Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. And it's David. Now, if I had to correct the scripture, I wish it would have said, instead of he was ruddy with handsome features, I wish he would have said, and he was disfigured in form, and he was, uh, he was rejected for a good reason. But that's, of course, the Lord. That's where he comes out in the suffering servant Isaiah, but I wasn't planning on saying that, so we'll go there later. Um, so, anyway, picks the least and not the most. God's working in, in the forgotten, the, the, the cast-off, the, the runt of the litter, rather than the, uh, the, the, the purest bread, the, the preference, the one who's been groomed for the corner office this whole time. That's where God is at work. Um, to, to put out just kind of a, uh, an idea. Any thoughts before we look at this little uh, four minutes from this talk from this woman named Brene Brown? It's going to be kind of a thread beneath it all. Um, TED, um, Technology, Entertainment, Design, these, uh, these, these fora where really smart people who are kind of movers and shakers give these 20, 30-minute talks. Um, I'm not sure what... Well, I do know because I heard in the talk. Brene Brown is a... Um, uh, a Ph.D. social worker. She writes books. She's a researcher and all that stuff. Um, it's kind of the early part where she's talking about connection is the thread of why we're here. Um, uh, and that she wanted to, in her own research and work, figure out what spoils connection. So think about our connection with, um, with our God, with ourselves, with our families, with our children, with our employees, with our employers, with with anybody else that we meet, you know, anywhere, what is it that spoils connection? How come things don't go right? And how come that's such a big deal? How come it hurts so much? Um, why is connection to another human being or a lack thereof, why is it so disproportionately powerful? You know, it's intoxicating when you connect with somebody and you fall in love the first time. I mean, it's the stuff that... Every book in the world that's ever been written has that as a background. Um, uh, and yet, likewise, when you're not connected to somebody in that way, that's also what every book in the world that's ever been written has in the background, that powerful rejection in that sense. And she comes in, and she's, she doesn't give any hints that she's a Christian or she's taking anything like this. But um, 
But I took it to think that, you know, here's a woman and she gets it. She's describing that God is at work in those places, um, put it in the negative. Sometimes the negative is a more powerful way to make something clear. Um, God is not at work in those places that we like best about ourselves. So those things that I like to put out on my CV or my resume, um, or, you know, recent study, our left side is our best side. So, but I don't have a good side, so that's the way it works out. You know, it's always the right side where God is at work, not our left, not our good profile, not our good side. That God is not at work in those places that we like best about ourselves, not our, not our relational strengths, not, not, um, not what I'm good at, um, but in fact in those other parts. And she gets that, and she's going to um, uh, really unpack it, um, defining it as shame. Just a few things, a um, few of her lines that you can listen out for. Um, that she likes to lean into the discomfort of her work. Um, she's talking about expanding our perception. Uh, the stories, as she asked for stories about connection, what she got almost 100% of the time were these heart-wrenching stories of disconnection. And so she asked, tell me the story, tell me a story about a time when something went really well with your children. And what she got back from people were all these stories of how they're separated. Tell me the time when a love had a happy ending. And what she got back were all these stories about spurned love. You know, it was really interesting, this human nature response that she wanted to share that. And so she started to unpack this disconnection, and she called shame the unnamed thing. Um, shame is the thing that unravels connection. And I thought this was profound. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Now, here Adam and Eve, who were connected with God and walked with him in the cool of the evening. But when uh, they ate the apple... Uh, and they were naked, and they became aware of that, and they hid shame, and they were afraid, and they disconnected themselves from God. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, I won't be worthy of connection? I think that's a pretty neat working premise to think of with this idea of, um, of families and, 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 and work relationships and our relationship with God and everything else, this, this way of looking at shame in a completely non-Christian base. So I'm going to show her any, any thoughts or questions before we, we, uh, we look at this. Somebody named Brene Brown. So I'm a researcher a storyteller. Um, and I'm going to talk to you today. We're talking about expanding perception. And so I want to talk to you and talk some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. Um, and this is where my story starts. When I was a young researcher, doctoral student, my first year I had a research professor who said to us, here's the thing. If you cannot measure it, it does not exist. And I thought he was just sweet-talking me. I was like, really? And he's like, absolutely. So you have to understand that I have a bachelor's in social work, a master's in social work, and I was doing my PhD in social work. So my entire academic career was surrounded by people who kind of believed in the life's messy, love it. You know, and I'm more of the life's messy, clean it up, organize it, and put it into a bento box. Um, and so to think that I had found my way, to found a career that takes me, you know, really one of the big things in, in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. 
And I'm like, you know, knock discomfort upside the head and move it over and get all eight. That's my, that was my mantra. So I was very excited about this. And so I thought, you know what? This is a career for me because I am interested in some messy topics, but I want to be able to make them not messy. I want to understand them. I want to hack into these things that I know are important and lay the code out for everyone to see. So where I started was with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired, it's why we're here. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to start with connection. Well, you know that, that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss and she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome and one thing that you can't get an opportunity for growth? <laughs> uh, and all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently this is the way my work went as well because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you the most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And when you ask people about connection, the stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as a fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, the thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how I feel about vulnerability. I hate vulnerability. And so I thought, this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in. I'm going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to spend a year. I'm going to totally deconstruct shame. I'm going to understand how vulnerability works. And I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready. And I was really excited. <laughs> As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know this. Good so I can tell you a lot um, about shame. Any thoughts on that? It's great one-liners that she throws out there. Um, it's universally experienced. No one wants to talk about it, but the less you talk about it, the more you have it. I think that was also pretty interesting. So. Comments? Ways to go about that are successful, and there are ways to go about that are not. Hmm. And oftentimes, we're on the wrong course. Hmm. 
Indeed. I think left to ourselves, we're always in the wrong course. Not even put it in that universal language. I think that's right, Jim. Um, you know, not asking for a response per se, but think about our children. You know, this is definitely me sort of putting my own self out there. Um, and how we relate, how I relate to our kids. Um, thinking about fear and shame really being that unnamed thing that disconnects us. Um, so from their lens, some sense of unworthiness or unapproachability to a parent. Well, that's a profoundly troubling idea. And this is going to be a little bit coming forward in the next weeks, looking at a couple of families. Uh, I think Ordinary People and um, Tom Skerritt's family with Brad Pitt and then that other guy that nobody ever remembers from the movie. Um, uh, you know, that idea of, of shame sort of as a, as, a, as a real strong idea that's present in, in, in most parent-child relationships. And it doesn't matter if your kid's eight or if we're the kids to our deceased, deceased parents. It's still there. That's a, that's a pretty powerful mode to think of. You know, thoughts here before I kind of play it out and see how Bono kind of worked this out in the late 90s. I was thinking, yeah. what, what is the what's the line between shame and pride? Because I was kind of thinking, just in my own life, a lot of times, I don't know if it's shame that I feel, it's more pride is hurt. Is that the same thing as shame? I, I don't really know if I yeah. know the difference. Any thoughts, anybody? No, I could talk myself into an answer, but see if anybody else has any thoughts first. Yeah, sure. Because vulnerability makes you so where you don't have any pride. Mm-hmm. There's nothing yeah. to be proud of. Yeah. Well, one thing um, that I was thinking about shame, and I remembered something that uh, Paul's all said about that we all yearn to be fully known mm-hmm. and fully loved. Mm-hmm. But but it's that shame that you know, if you really knew me. You wouldn't love me. Stop. Yeah. This imposing need to be an imposter. Yeah. Because if you really knew, then the gig is up and I'm, I'm disconnected. Coming back a little bit, shame, humility, pride. I wonder if humility is sort of the middle, this, this, this extreme vulnerability. For anybody who's familiar with any kind of 12-step group, that's going to be some language that's familiar there's pride on the one end and shame on the other. I'm, I'm, I am good. I'm not good enough. You know, both of those would be a wrong view of human nature, a wrong view of who I am. It's the identity question that Frank was talking about. Um, I'm going to use that as a segue over, and then we can just talk. There's this song, um, uh, and really, come back. I mean, it's not all you two, but, but this is just my prism. It's what I know through and all that stuff, and so... Uh, I actually think Bono is a thinker at this level. Um, Bono, the lead singer of U2, he lost his mom, I think, when he was 13. And so here's the shame, this sense of, uh, of disconnectedness, this fear that plays out. And so he wrote a song called Mofo. I know it's an awful title for a song, but he wrote it. Um, and in the Pop Mart tour, anybody remembers that? That's like the 1997-1998 tour. And up to that point, they had done things that had never been done before. They had a screen, a video screen. 
that was 165 feet wide by, I think it was 120 feet tall. They had a big arch that was 165 feet tall. If you remember that a story, a building story, is 10 feet, so that's 16 and a half stories tall by 16 stories wide. I mean, it was just this massive, massive stage. And they were self-parrying and being ironic in a way that, that few people got it. They thought they were taking themselves too seriously, but they were trying to poke fun at all this, and, and hence the word pop, um, their album title, and also the uh, uh, pop mart. They were trying to poke fun at the rampant consumerism and, and just the excess that was all there and making fun of themselves as they were being dubbed the, uh, the overly earnest um, crusaders to save the world who would stand up and wave a flag and all that stuff. They are like, fine, let's just go in. And, you know, we announced the tour at Kmart in New York City and just make complete kitsch out of it. And that's what they did. And some people in Europe got it. America didn't get it. They, they just didn't understand pop. Um, not that I do, but that's actually a great album. So they started. What we're going to look at is the uh, uh, first ten minutes, nine and a half minutes of the, of the tour video. They started this best intro, I think, to a concert that they've ever done. Um, some of us will remember this song from the 70s called Pop Music. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was big disco and all that stuff. Well, they remixed that, and that was the, uh, this long like, four-minute intro, um, and they bled it into MoFo with all this uh, uh, sort of redundant techno beat that was really looped and really heavy and kind of inaccessible, very diffuse, a lot of, lot of noise. Well, that's exactly a metaphor for diffuse, a lot of noise, inaccessible. You know, that's the human condition with all this junk and hubris right up top and missing what's underneath. Um, and so to look at a few things, I'm going to highlight a couple of things that I hear every time I listen to this and when I see it. Um, so you can be looking at it for them, too. But then look for something else. Um, this long intro, and they come in with this thump, 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 thump. And it's just like Vegas, where two, you know, big boxing match is coming out. And I'm not a big boxer, but you know that's a big time where every, everybody's blood is boiling and millions of dollars are on the heavyweight bout. And what do they do? The two boxers come out and they've got their entourage, and it's all grandstanding. It's all it's all fake. It's all just let me show you that I'm bigger and badder than you are. Um, that's Bono. He comes out as a boxer, and he's even got that sort of shirt on, that T-shirt that you still see sometimes at the beach, which you put it on, and it looks like, you know, it's muscles and all that stuff, and so he looks like he's ripped, and he's got his hoodie on and all that stuff, and he comes out looking like a boxer with also really tight leather pants, and so it's all sort of, you know, I'm physically imposing, and it's all about sex, you know. Is there anything else that we grandstand about? I'm bigger and badder than you and everything else. And meanwhile, the other three guys in the band, they're just doing village people stuff. They really are. They're just parodying, you know, like the village people. Edge comes out like a cowboy and rodeo rider or something. I don't know. Anyway, you can look at them. Uh, it's not supposed to make sense, I think. But they come out, and there's all this grandstanding and Bono shadow boxing, and it's just bravado, bravado, bravado. First word of the song, mofo, looking for to save my, save my soul. And I think that, and I wrote this once, and I'll for Mockingbird, that's the pop, that's the deflation, it's a statement of need, and you, you miss it with all the noise, with all the visual hoopla, with all the things that we create in our life to not let you know who I really am for the fear that, that if you really knew, you wouldn't, not only you wouldn't like me, but, but you, would, you would remove yourself from me, and I would be alone. Um, we create this massive web so that you don't really see that, even as I might let out the lyric, looking for to save my, save my soul. And he describes this, um, you know, there's the five senses, touch, smell, taste, sight, and hearing. 
Well, we have more than that. Um, this is getting more and more airplay now. We've got all these other senses. There's the, what's it called, the propio, proprioception sense. That's like where, if even if I don't look at it, I know where my hand is at all the time. You know, so there's that sense. There's that sense of uh, that a lot of animals have. We have it only a limited sense of, uh, of heat. When heat comes in, you know, it's not something you see or smell or hear, but you're aware of somebody else. Sometimes we know when somebody else is in a room, even though we don't we don't see him or anything. There's that sense. Well, there's this other sense, and maybe right here today we can we can come up with a name for it because I've never heard it named. But it's definitely where the theology of all this is. There's that sense that I have to be in relationship to other people. I've got to be connected. That's what this song is about. Because ostensibly it's about the death of his mother, but it's really about a lot more. And so he describes this search. Here's some of the lyrics the lyrics from uh, from this song where um, uh, where again if it's ostensibly about his mother dying and music becoming a substitute mother and the world is not enough but the music is at another level it's the story of, of trying to reconcile ourselves to this search because as I said it starts off saying looking for to save my save my soul looking in the places no flowers grow so now we're back to you know David being number eight looking to fill that God-shaped hole so he's quoting Descartes I mean, uh, not Descartes, um, Pascal. Um, looking for the baby Jesus under the trash, one of my favorite lines. Um, looking for a sound that's going to drown out the world. Um, that was definitely a big thing on their last album, too. The sound, the sound of the rushing waters of Revelation 22, this new sound. Um, let me in the sound, let me in the sound. You remember that refrain? Um, looking for the father of my two little girls. He just had two babies at that time. Still looking for the face that I had when the world was made. Um, so it's the song about a search. It's the song about uh, a search for my God, myself, and connections. Um, uh, he closes it, and this is where he did it on in the um, uh, in the uh, in the live versions. He, he, as he often does, made it into a prayer, and he just starts crooning, "Move me a mountain, move me a mountain, move me a mountain." That's not in the the uh, the liner notes of the studio versions. But, of course, he's praying it. And he's praying it to God, you know, where he's right out of, of, uh, of, of the Gospels, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anybody that has the faith like a mustard seed can say to that mountain, move, and that mountain will get up and throw itself into the sea. What in the world is that about? And I'm going to end with this, and then we'll listen to this. Um, it's about Christianity. It's not hard. It's impossible. And so you see, it's a different category if you're trying to say, well, it's hard for me to stay in a relationship with that person. You don't know her like I do. Um, well, it's the wrong category to think that way. I mean, if Christianity is not hard. It's, it's, it's not hard to move a mountain. It's impossible. Um, and that's what this is about. Um, it's not the possibility. It's Christianity is oriented completely and fully around failure and around disconnection and about losing and about, about alienation and about a fruitless search where you're even looking for Jesus under the trash. And the weird thing is, the, you don't move towards the goal. The goal moves itself towards you. I think that's Gerhard Faraday. I can't remember. Um, and that's, that's, that's mofo, I think. And so here's, here's all this bravado, this grandstanding, and then the statements of need. And it's this, this real collision of the two, which I think is very descriptive of life. Any comments? You may leave if you want to before you watch all this. And so, um, but if you like it, it's, uh, it's coming.
about ten minutes, and so we're going to be over a little bit. Obviously, looking at McDonald's, consumerism, just rise of fast food. Mexico City, yeah. So. This is huge. <laughs> Bono is a Pacino. I mean, he's just he's just totally in the character, you know. He he does not come out. So he's going to fight. That's what he's going to do. So. Right or wrong, love it or like it, you know, he's all in. So. You expect to see Don King back there or something. So. Oh man, I was so bad. <laughs> Look at him. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Remember what Brene Brown said about vulnerability? Absolute wall right here. It's all just noise. Yeah. Just saying, bend around back, bend around front. The whole search idea, circle, circle, circle. Freudian there. He throws in Christ, Freud, 
Pascal, I mean, he's got them all in there, so. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Time for a comment or two. We're over. What about that? Thoughts? What's that? I think so. It's an abrasive line to a lot of people. Um, I think if if you don't think that's abrasive, I'm that makes I'm thankful. Um, people wouldn't think that Jesus was was found in the garbage. You would put him in the high in holy place and not not in the garbage. The baby Jesus was born in a barn. Uh, agreed. Preach it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> um, how quickly we want to move him out of the barn and sanitize it. Look at any children's Bible. I mean, it's he's meek and mild and he's clean and he's white and he's not no crying he makes. And, you know, y'all had babies? <laughs> Children are innocent. Really? I mean, do you not do you not know this child? So, um Yeah. That's it. That's it. And he doesn't grow out of it. Christ doesn't. He keeps going back into that that mire, right up to the cross. You know, why have you forsaken me? Right there in that forgotten place, the garbage dump. You know, we don't visit those places very much. I put my garbage on the curb and I don't think about it. So, yeah, last comment. He wasn't shamed. He wasn't shamed. Christ? Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's the one person who's never had shame. That's right. That is exactly right. Let me pray. This just kind of getting us going. So, thanks for being here. Lord, for, uh, for this day, for this people, for our connection to you, um, give you thanks. Work, I pray, um, in the hidden places, in the ugly places, in the forgotten places. Uh, and, uh, and move mountains, Lord. Don't do what's hard. Do what's impossible. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, y'all. See you.